church, we are extremely blessed and fortunate. Uh, I'm so thankful for all of our volunteers. Um, this morning, I mean, we have volunteers on the platform leading you in worship, volunteers greeting people as you enter into the church, volunteer Sunday school teachers, volunteers running the sound, volunteers working in the nursery. We are a blessed church. Amen. We have some amazing volunteers in our church, and I'm so grateful uh, for all of our members who serve so faithfully and uh, so diligently and thankful for all of our volunteers in our church. Well, good morning. Uh, if you are a visitor or a regular attender, my name is Pastor Jonathan, and I want you to know uh, that you are welcome here, and I am so grateful that you have joined us today. Now, I have four kids, and uh, for my older two kids, I've had the opportunity uh, to coach their baseball and softball teams uh, when they were younger until they got too good and I couldn't coach them anymore, right? And I was the head coach of my son's baseball team when he was in 6U baseball. That means six years old and under. And coaching that 6U baseball team was a lot like herding cats. Uh, there was always the kid who, uh, when he got up to bat, he stood behind the plate and every single game, every single at bat, you'd have to go tell him, no, you stand to the side of the plate or else you're going to get hit by the ball, right? And then on the 10th and the final game of the season, he would walk up there and he would stand on the right side of the plate and there would be a thunderous applause for him standing in the right position. And then he gets scared and do what? He'd go right back here, right? <laughs> but even more difficult than that uh, was teaching the children the positions and then convincing them to stay in those positions, right? You know, the ball would get hit to second base and then the right fielder would run all the way up and then begin wrestling the second baseman for the ball. Meanwhile, the other kids just running the bases, right? Or a kid would hit a ball into the left field and the shortstop would run out and begin wrestling that kid for the ball and then they would just be running the bases and, you know, have no one to throw to a cutoff in. I mean, you just had to laugh at it when you coach six years old and under in baseball. But then a funny thing begins to occur as the kids get older. And now Titus is in 10 and under baseball. And they begin to understand that every position plays a very specific role. And they begin to even understand situational awareness, like how every position functions in every scenario and situation. See, everyone in a sports team plays a specific role, usually centered around their natural abilities. In football, the kicker's role is not to pass the ball. The kicker's role is not to block for the quarterback and not to tackle unless something's gone terribly, terribly wrong, right? But he has one specific role, and that is his gifting that he's been naturally gifted at, and it benefits the team as a whole. In sports, everyone has a job centered around their specific gifting. Today, I want us to talk about how God has gifted us all in the church with specific, unique, and diverse gifts, but yet there is, amidst our diversity, there is a beautiful unity. So today we'll conclude the two-part sermon series that we began last week in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And last week, through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we saw a beautiful depiction of the unity that exists between us as believers, that we have all been called and tasked to a worthy walk like we saw in verse 1. And then we saw two ways that we are to maintain the unity that we're called to. First, in verses 2 through 3, we saw that our, our Christian unity is maintained through the charity of our conduct as we walk worthy with actions of humility and gentleness and patience and putting up with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
And then second, in verses four through six, we saw that our Christian unity is maintained through its visibility, discovering that our oneness, our unity is not really even up to us. But our unity, our oneness as a body of Christ is a fixed reality. And we are one through the oneness of God, the oneness of faith, the oneness of baptism, and the oneness of the body, no matter what it is that you or I do. But our task, like we saw last week, is to maintain the visibility of our Christian unity and to display it to a watching world. We finished with the first part of the vision that I believe that God has called us to, and that's what we just walked through, to be a unified church who displays their unity for a watching world to see. So today I want us to conclude in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, discovering two more ways that we are to maintain the unity that we are called to, uh, looking at verses 7 through 16. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, take it out and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. And, and while you're turning there, uh, let's review what's going on in the book of what's gone on in the book of Ephesians so far. So Paul, through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, has been unfolding to his readers the eternal purposes of God that God has been working out through history. That through Jesus Christ, who died for sinners and was raised from death, God is creating something entirely new. And Paul sees an alienated humanity being reconciled and a fractured humanity being united and a, even a new humanity being created through our commonality in Jesus Christ. So Paul now moves on from the new society to the new standards which are expected of this community. Let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 to remember what it is that we heard last week. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And there is one body and there is one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord and one faith and one baptism, and one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. So last week we read that, and we came to the understanding of those two uh, ways that we are to maintain the unity that we just talked about. But the third way that Paul tells us to maintain our Christian unity is that our Christian unity is maintained and enriched by our diverse gifts. And he shows us that in verses 7 through 11. Let's look at that now. It says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Paul begins verse 7 with a very simple transitional word, but. And this begins a rather large transition. See, the contrast between verse 6 and verse 7 is huge. It's striking. Verse 6 speaks of our unity, of God as the Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. However, verse 7 begins with our individuality. But grace is given to each of us. So with that little transition word, but there... It can be translated in spite of that, or on the other hand, Paul turns from, turns from speaking about all of us to each of us. And Paul spins the conversation from the unity of the church 
to the diversity of the church. See, Paul's getting ready to make the argument and preparing to make the point that unity is not uniformity, as John MacArthur puts it, but rather our unity is enriched by our diversity. So Paul says, but on the other hand, grace was given. Now, grace is a single word definition of the gospel. The nature of grace is giving because God's nature is to give and God has graciously given of himself for us. Grace is God's nature and because of who he is, he has given of himself for us. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And therefore, God's grace is his unmerited, his unearned and undeserved favor. And the incomprehensible and staggering truth of the gospel is that the holy God of the universe has given himself for sinful humanity. And we read back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no man can boast. You know, God owes us nothing other than judgment for our sins. But rather, God has bestowed his grace upon us. This is the grace that we stand in, like we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. It not only saves us, but it also enables us and it empowers us. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul continues. He says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. As believers, see, we're all given saving grace, the grace which saves sinners. But Paul also is saying here that we are given service grace. That is the grace that equips God's people to serve. So we're saved by grace and we're given grace so we can serve. We are saved to serve. But who is this grace of God given to? Well, Paul continues saying grace was given not just to some, not just to a few, but grace was given to each one of us. Well, who is us? Well, in this context, Paul speaking to believers whom he's just reminded, hey, we're all in prison for the Lord and we're all called by the Lord. So every believer of Jesus Christ receives grace for service. See, we each have a gift that is measured out to us with distinct capabilities and parameters and purposes. And each of us is given a specific gift which we are given to use to minister in Christ's name. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us, and let us use them. See, gifts are something that we receive, not something that we choose or we obtain for ourselves. We receive spiritual gifts through the working of God's grace. And our gifts as believers are not determined by our preferences or our merit or our natural abilities, but rather solely by the sovereignty of God and the grace of God. We're gifted by God, and God's plan is for us to serve Him and be used for His purposes. It's literally all about Him. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. See, God is the sole giver and determiner of spiritual gifts. And they're given, why? For the common good. Believer today, I want you to know that God has gifted you and he has equipped you for the common good. 
so that your gifting can be used. See, while we are united in our common confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and in our oneness, like we saw in verses one through six, we begin to see in verse seven that we are diverse in our gifting. One pastor put it this way. He said, believers' gifts are like snowflakes and fingerprints. Each one is distinctly different from all others. See, as Christians, we're not assembly line products with every Christian being exact replicas of each other. No, we are distinct and we are varied and we are unique. And we are each graciously gifted by Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, Paul makes it clear that God has graciously gifted each one of us differently. In fact, like we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, we see that none of us should feel like we have nothing to add because we all have something that we can contribute to the body of Christ. And furthermore, our church is weakened if we don't serve it in the unique ways in which we are gifted. However, we should also all recognize again that these are unique gifts that God has given us, and therefore none of us should pretend like we have done anything or we're better than one another. You see, the one who's gifted in making sure that the grass is mowed is just as needed as the one who is uh, needed to make sure that the sound equipment works or that the piano is being played. All are greatly needed in the church to make sure that things go well. We are only gifted because of Jesus giving us gifts, not of anything of our own doing. So we celebrate that God has given us gifts by using our gifts to serve the local church. And we recognize that God has gifted us all uniquely and diversely so that we can meet the needs of the church gathered called Mission Dorado Baptist Church. See, our diversity amidst our unity is something to be celebrated. To further Paul's point here in verses 8 through 11, he quotes, Psalm 68 through 18, to show how Christ received the right to give these gifts. Now, theologians make all kinds of assumptions as to where Christ ascended and to ascended to in this passage, and there are arguments to be made for these. However, Paul's point here, the big picture, his point, is not so much as the location of his dissension and ascension as much as it is the power of Jesus to do so. See that Jesus humbled himself to save men, and he's still presently in power and forever exalted, that Christ had the power to ascend and descend, and he has the power to rule the church, and he has the power to give us as gifts to the church to bring it to maturity. Paul says that when Jesus ascended far above all the heavens, he gave gifts to humans, enabling us all as God's gifts to the church to be spirit-filled, saved believers who are able in our own individual way to fulfill Acts 1-8, to be his witnesses. See, in other words, Paul uses this psalm to say that Christ, after descending into this world to die for us, then gave us all as gifts back to the church. You see, we don't just have God's gifts but you and I are God's gifts to the church to serve the church. Specifically, the church is not just here in order to bless us, as if we're a shopper filling up our grocery carts at the store and grabbing what we need from the store. No, the opposite is true. We are all saved to serve, and we are saved and then given to our churches as gifts to bless one another by serving one another. See, church, we're not meant to be consumers, but we are made to be contributors. And God has given you to the local church to contribute. Don't rob the church of the gift that you are to him. Paul then continues in verse 11 saying, And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. Paul tells us here that Jesus has given to his church 
a certain group of people to lead the work of ministry in the church, building up the body of Christ. Now, we can see all these titles, and we can begin to think in Old Testament terms. However, to get the gist of what Paul means by these titles and to bring ease of our understanding, we can think of this entire group as the leaders of the church. So, Paul is, so God has given us all individual gifting to serve the church, and he's given some individuals particular callings and giftings to lead the church. Yesterday, as a church family, our church gathered and held a funeral for our founding pastor, Brother Bob. And I don't know any funeral message that has ever been easier to preach. Because all we had to do was just talk about how Brother Bob spent his entire life making his confession that Jesus Christ is Lord through his actions and leading others to make that confession. I think we can look at Brother Bob and other pastors that we have known and we can easily conclude that, yes, God has gifted certain men to lead the church. But I think we can also all remember those who impacted us in the church. Maybe they were a greeter, or maybe they were a Sunday school teacher, or maybe they led our kids' choir, or maybe they helped us memorize scriptures as a child, or maybe they were simply a servant who worked behind the scenes serving others. Paul's entire point in verses 7 through 11 here is contrasting our unity with our diversity and showing us that amidst our unity, there is a beautiful diversity where we're all uniquely gifted by God, each of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, not just the leaders of the church, but every believer is gifted by God. See, our Christian unity is maintained and enriched by our diverse gifts. So we're all gifted. We've all been gifted by God. Well, what are we to do with these individual gifts that we have been given? Well, look at verses 12 through 16. And we see the fourth and last way that Paul tells us to maintain our Christian unity is that our Christian unity is maintained by serving one another, which leads to the maturity of the body. Let's read verses 12 through 16 now in chapter 4. It says this. To equip the... to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 12, Paul, in verse 12, Paul makes it incredibly plain why we are gifted individually by God. We're not gifted to boast, but we are gifted to serve. What does service look like? Well, the first reason we're all gifted by God is to equip God's people for the work of ministry. It's easy for us to read this passage alone and come to the conclusion that verse 11 is calling the leaders of the church to raise up more leaders of the church. But the word for ministry here is not used to describe the work of pastors or elders, but rather the work of all of God's people without exception. And there's clear evidence here that the New Testament envisions the minister of the church not as the job of the pastors alone, but as a privileged calling of all of the people of God. 
Now, this is not to diminish the unique calling that pastors and elders have in the church. Certainly, they are to teach and they're to train and to enable the people of God to be a servant people. But they are not to hoard all the ministry for themselves, but rather to be multipliers of those in ministry who is the entire church serving. I read a story recently of a pastor who visited another church on a Sunday morning. And on the front of the bulletin was the name of the pastor, as you typically see. And then there was the name of the associate pastor. And then there was a line that read ministers. And right after that, it just simply said the entire congregation. And the pastor was taken aback at first, but then he thought how undeniably of a biblical statement that was. See, all believers are gifted by God to be ministers of the gospel That's why our vision for Mission Dorado is simply this, to be a church who is producing the next generation to glorify God. The church who is producing the next generation to glorify God. This involves all of us. We're all gifted by God to be used by God to equip the next generation of God's people to continue to minister and to serve. And it never stops See, our church, Mission Dorado, was began 25 years ago by Brother Bob. And it's my prayer that through God's work carried out by the generations in this room presently, that it will still be ministering and glorifying God for generations to come. But hear me, we can't get lazy about it. It's not up to one man to continue the work of ministry, but it's up to us all. We've all been gifted to serve, and God has gifted us to serve. And that's the purpose of the grace that we have received. It's to serve others. Why? Well, Paul continues saying, this is why, for building up the body of Christ. See, when the church is being properly equipped and properly being poured into and we are properly serving one another with our service grace gifts, then this results in building up the body. And the word for building here literally refers to the building of a house, just like we saw in 1 Peter that we looked at last week, how we as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, which is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. We as believers are being fitted together and we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit, like we see in Ephesians chapter 2. And the body is being built up through evangelism, through the teaching of God's word, and through our serving and equipping of one another for us all to be ministers so that we are all becoming ministers of the gospel to minister to one another with our diverse gifts. Paul then continues in verse 13 saying this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. See, the building up of the body, the pouring into the next generation to glorify God, the preaching of God's word, evangelism, results in unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. But let's hold up a second here. In verse 3, Paul told us that the unity needed to be maintained. But now we're told in verse 13 that the unity needs to be attained. Well, which is it, Paul? Make up your mind here. If the unity already exists and our job is to maintain its visibility, then how can it be attained? Well, theologian John Stott tells us that there are degrees of unity, just as there are degrees of sanctity. So just as we are saved, but we're not fully saved because we're not fully like Jesus, we are unified, but we're not fully unified until the day when we are glorified in heaven with God forever. See, in fact, Paul tells us that this unity and knowledge lead to mature manhood. What does Paul mean by this? Does he mean that at some point we'll all have a great beard as we come into mature manhood? Well, absolutely not, right? Paul's use of mature manhood is speaking to the church as a whole, the body of Christ growing up into an adult stature, not being a child. 
In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in the next verse, in verse 14. Look at that now. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I think about when you were a child and this trend would come around or that trend would come around. I mean, it caused some of us to wear some really ridiculous looking clothing that we have pictures of, right? Or to have really ridiculously hairstyles that we have pictures of, right? And now that I have children, when fads are coming or trends are coming, I'll look at them when they buy an article of clothing or shoes and say, do you like it? And I'll tell them, that's all that matters. What others say shouldn't persuade what we know is true about what we like or what we enjoy. I'll tell that to my kids. And the same is true in the church. Church, we are to be growing up into maturity so that we know what it is that we know and we know what it is that we believe and we stand firm in that with solid roots. Not allowing what others say or no matter how crafty or attractive to persuade us from what we know and believe is true and that we see in God's word. The past few times that I've preached this text, I put it like this. To put it in West Texas lingo, don't be a tumbleweed. See, tumbleweeds have shallow roots and they dry up quickly and then they're blown wherever the wind takes them. Now we need to have deep roots in scripture to continue to grow and mature like a mature oak tree so that when the winds come, we are planted deeply and firmly and can withstand the storms and provide shelter to those who stand under us and beside us because of who it is that we are rooted in, Jesus Christ. Paul continues in verse 15 saying, rather... The way that the church grows into maturity is this, speaking the truth in love. See, we as a church, we don't care what the trends are. We don't care where the wind is blowing or what it is that is seeking to condemn us from speaking the truth of God's word. We proclaim the truth of God's word to the world and to one another to continually over and over remind one another what it is that God's word says. But how are we to proclaim what is true to the world and one another? Well, we do it with love. See, it's easy, it's common to find churches and congregations who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But many times they're lacking in love. And it's really common and it's really easy to find churches who are determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love but then they sacrifice the truth of Scripture really quickly in doing so. But what Paul is communicating here is that the body of Christ grows in maturity when it does both, when we speak the truth in love. See, Paul calls for us to hold the two together, to grow into fully mature Christian unity as a body of Christ. Paul then finishes in verse 16 saying this, When we do this, when we grow up into Christ, who is the head of the body, then the body will work properly and grow when it's built up in love. See, Paul, through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, has given his vision for the church. That God's new society is to display charity, is to display unity and diversity, and to be growing in maturity. These are the characteristics of a life worthy of the calling to which God has called us. And Paul's main point in verses 12 through 16 is this. Our Christian unity is maintained by serving one another, which leads to the maturity of the body. Now, I haven't been married for an incredibly long time to most of you. To some of you, I have been married a long time, if you've just been married a little while. But I have been married long enough to figure out a few things. And one of those things is this. 
When you serve your wife, it results in feelings of love from her. And through consistent serving and loving her through actions of love, it results in the maturity of your relationship. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, if you serve your wife by taking out the trash, by doing the dishes, by cleaning up, by taking all the kids away so she can have a moment, or by changing a diaper, she recognizes you're making an effort to serve her and your family, to love her with your actions. But if you don't do these things, then it can result in maybe feelings from her of, why doesn't he ever do these things, or exhaustion from her, which is not, does not lead to maturity in your relationship. And sadly, I have experienced that when I've been younger in my marriage. And if you are married, you desire for your relationship to mature. Because if your relationship is not maturing, then it is stale or it's non-existent. Christian, how much more so should we take seriously the gifting that God has given each of us and use them to serve one another? See, God has called us all to pour into the next generation And you may say, well, I don't even know enough to mentor anyone. I don't know enough to pour into anyone. Or, well, no one wants to know anything that I have to share. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. There are those in this room that are desperate to know how in the world someone stays married for 45 years because they've never seen it done. Let's disciple one another. Let's be the church. Let's pour into that younger couple and not send them to a self-help book, but let's be the church and disciple the next generation well. There are those in this room that want to know how in the world to raise kids to follow the Lord, to know what you've learned, to know what you would do differently if you were able to do it again. Let's not recommend them a YouTube video, but let's disciple one another. Let's pour into those young parents and let's be the church together. There's in these, there are those in these rooms that need to know how to deal with the trauma of divorce or those in these rooms that need to know how with the trauma of losing a spouse. Hear me, if you've gone through those things, God has given you a testimony and that you can pour into those and you can disciple and you can love them well. There are those in these rooms that need to know how to walk a life of contentness and singleness. And let's be the church and disciple one another to find our contentness in Jesus Christ. And in this room, I believe there are many of you who have knowledge of this because you've walked through these paths, you've lived through these journeys, and you've seen the goodness of God through it and on the other side of it. And God's not given you these victories and this wisdom or this maturity to keep it to yourself, but he's given it to you to intentionally pour into the next generation, to make disciples, to help one another love Jesus and hate our sin more. And therefore, I believe that the vision that God is calling us to as a church is simply what we've seen in this text and what Paul has walked out. First, a unified church who displays their unity for a watching world to see. Second, that our Christian unity is enriched by the diversity of our spiritual gifts shared with one another. And both those lead to our big vision as a church so that we are a church. Church who is producing the next generation to glorify God. And hear me, church, I need you. I can't do this alone. This involves all of us. This year, as we go forward, I need you all to step up and serve. Many of you already are, but I need you all to step up and serve in different capacities so that we can fulfill the vision and the mission that God has given us as a church. Today, I just have one simple observation for us, and it's rather unique, but it's this. God has made us all different. And we need to just be who God made us to be and serve others with our own unique gifts. Now hear me, for most of my life, I felt the need to emulate others, 
to try to be like others so I could accomplish what they had accomplished. And it wasn't until my late 20s when my former pastor in Hal, Texas, told me this. He said, Jonathan, God created you uniquely. You just need to be who God created you to be. Now, that doesn't mean there's times that I don't need to restrain my extrovertedness, right? It doesn't mean that I need to give into you my unique sin struggles. But what he meant by that and what Scripture is calling us here to do and telling us is that God has gifted us all uniquely. And he's gifted me to be an extroverted, sports-loving, technologically-loving nerd. Hear me, don't call me to fix your car, but if you're having computer issues, call me, okay? If you need to know a sports rule or you want to get beat in ping pong or tennis, then give me a call. God has gifted me in those ways. So how can I use how God has gifted me to connect with and encourage others and to pour in them to cause them to be more like Jesus than they were yesterday? Maybe for you, God's created you to be an introvert. I don't understand you, but I love you, okay? But you have the focus to sit down and to write handwritten cards to others that people might lead me can't do. Or maybe God's gifted you with being able to fix cars. Or maybe he's gifted you with the ability to make blankets for babies like Miss Barbara does. The point is this. God has uniquely gifted us all differently. And we just need to be who God has made us to be and to serve others with our own unique gifts. So how is it? that God has gifted you to be able to minister to others to produce the next generation to glorify God. Be who it is that God created you to be while you use your unique and diverse gifts to pour into the next generation. I believe God has called Mission Dorado to be a church who's intentionally producing the next generation to glorify God. And let's be who God created us to be. And let's be a diverse, unified church who is producing the next generation to glorify God. Our big idea for today is this. New creations display their unity through serving one another. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Believer in this room, God's not saved you to put you on a shelf and store you until you die. He's saved you so you can serve Him and His church. You serve him through serving the local church, through discipling the next generation, and through sharing him in your community. And you may be doing some of these things, or you may not be doing any of these things. But this year, we have our mission. And we've seen what God has called us to be and to do from his word as his servants. Let's not be saved and stored Christians, but let's be saved and serving Christians. Today, maybe you need to come to this altar, and you need just to recommit yourself to be about serving to be about discipling, to be about sharing the gospel. Maybe you need to come see me this week and talk about how you can get active in these areas. But let's be busy about the Lord's work this year, producing the next generation to glorify God. Maybe you're in this place today and you feel like you walked in a family meeting in which you know nothing about. And I want you to tell you today, you can also be a part of the family of God as well. And this can be a church that you can belong to. I want you to know clearly that there is a God who loves you today. He's holy. That means he's set apart, that he cannot be associated with sin. He's never done anything wrong, nor can he do anything wrong. And he created everything that we can see and we can touch and we can feel. But yet all of us, every human that has ever lived, we've all sinned. We've all done something against God's law. We've all lied or stolen or cheated or lusted or done something against God's law. And this creates a problem because a holy God cannot be associated with sin or sinners, which we all are. 
So we're separated from God for all of eternity, not because God hates us, but because His character won't allow Him to be associated with sins. And that's really bad news. But I have good news today. God loves you so much that He made a way that you can be with Him for all of eternity in a real place called heaven through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth as a baby. He lived a fully perfect, sinless life. Uh, and He was fully God and He was fully man. And then He went to a cross and He died in our place for our sins. And then three days later, he defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. So today, hear me. If you believe in Jesus, if you confess and turn from your sins and you follow him, then you can and you will be saved by him. Today, I want to call you to respond. If you don't have a relationship with God this morning, if you don't know where your eternity will be spent, you can leave here today confident in Christ you can become part of the family of God, a family where we all admit that we're not perfect, but we sure have a Father who is. Have you done this? In a moment when we sing, that's the moment you can come down front and I can help you walk through this. Would you come today? Believers, the altar is open. Let's do business with the Lord today. Church, I love you so much. <laughs>